0: I am Joe Rich, still gallivanting around Ireland. He will return next week. But we have a packed show, a solo adventure planned for you today. Topics include AEW Grand Slam. We're going to do a little Thursday Dynamite review for free on the free feed this week, as opposed to paywall on that baby. So all of you who are non-subscribers, Get a little taste of the Thursday Dynamite reviews that we do every week behind the paywall on the $5 tier. So we'll talk about AEW Grand Slam, break down the entire episode of Dynamite plus talk business. We will discuss CMLL's 89th anniversary show, a fantastic show. I am all in on CMLL. I I am in. We talked about it last week. I crash watched basically the entire summer. I think CMLL as a promotion has a ton of positive energy right now. And their anniversary show was an absolute blast. And we will review that. Dragon Gate had their Dangerous Gate show. And there was a lot of fallout coming out of that. Surrounding two of their bigger stars taking bows to the crowd. Are they leaving the company? I will talk about Dangerous Gate and everything I know about that very fluid situation involving two of their biggest stars. We're going to have to talk about Raw ratings at some point. We'll touch on Sabu and all the talk this week, thanks to a Rob Van Dam tweet regarding Sabu and his intentional botches. A little bit of Mox versus Gage on the heels of Mox once again becoming the AEW World Champion throwing some game-changer wrestling plans in major flux, and maybe more as we move along. But I want to start here. I want to talk about something that WWE is genuinely great at. Now They've had their flaws over the last several years. The back end of the Vince McMahon era of the company Uh, certainly isn't the brightest period in the history of WWE. And one of their major flaws has been the inability to create and build babyface stars. I think that would be generally accepted even by the most ardent and hardcore WWE fans that might listen to this. It's been a struggle. They knew they had to replace John Cena at some point and the chosen one was Roman Reigns and whether it was just Vince McMahon no longer having his finger on the pulse at what works in today's society or whatever other reason you want to conjure up for six, seven, eight years, this company and Vince McMahon in particular tried their hardest to get Roman Reigns over. As the next in line in the lineage of huge babyface stars that are the face of the company that started with Bruno San Martino and then Pedro Morales, Bob Backlund, Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena. You go right down the line. Roman Reigns was next in line. He was in the on-deck circle. And due to WWE's inability, or maybe I should say loss of ability to effectively create and build babyface stars during the back end of Vince's tenure, it just never took. We all know the struggles they had with Roman. A lot of us knew the cure, and it ended up being exactly what they ultimately did. Which was turn Roman heel. Which freshened him up in all the ways that he needed to be freshened up. Made him come across cool. They have finally gotten Roman over. Ironically enough, they finally got Roman over as a babyface by turning him heel. They haven't even turned him back. He's still a heel, but he's the most popular wrestler in the company. At least in terms of crowd reactions and perceived star power and all of those things. So the purpose of this opening diatribe or rant or whatever you want to call it isn't to disparage Roman Reigns. I think he's genuinely doing the best work of his career, particularly on the microphone, particularly with how he conveys his character. Uh, bell to bell. I don't know if I would agree. He's doing the best work of his career. Uh, But in terms of having the best matches that he's ever had, I thought his uh, babyface formula was conducive to better and more interesting matches than his heel formula. But what you do have to say about Roman's matches since the heel turn and during this 750-plus day title reign that's going to be the core of our discussion today What I think you do have to concede is that he's working to his character and working to his gimmick spectacularly. That he's doing. It may not make for the best matches. It may not make for a litany of classics. And we're going to go over them, believe me, with a fine-tooth comb because this man is not having classics. But he's doing his job and what he's asked to do and he's doing it effectively. And he is on the best run of his career. With that said, in regards to the 750 plus day title reign. This is a glowing example of something WWE does do particularly well. And better than any other wrestling promotion in the world. Ever. WWE has this unique ability to get their fan base to believe and accept anything they are told by WWE themselves. And then by proxy, the WWE-friendly media, the WWE-friendly wrestling media, that dutifully clap like seals and repeat the narratives that WWE wants pushed. They're great at this. They're great at establishing and marketing WrestleMania as such a powerful tool that it really doesn't even matter what's on the card anymore. People just want to go to WrestleMania. They got the brand itself, WWE, over to where those letters are the most over thing in the company more so than the sum of the parts, more so than any of the wrestlers on the actual roster. People are loyal. Their hardcore fans are loyal and devoted to the brand of WWE and the brand of WrestleMania. And we could certainly debate the merits of that type of strategy and how that relates to their struggles and their inability to create true top stars, but that's not the conversation I want to have today. And a lot of what I'm going to say might come across passive aggressive or backhanded, but the reality is WWE's ability to get their fan base to believe and accept anything they're told by WWE themselves and accept it as fact is a massive positive for them. And I'm complimenting them on this. And I think this Roman Reigns title reign is a great example of that. Now, it's been a pretty good title reign in terms of reestablishing their top title, or titles now in this case, now that he holds both of them, as important. You know, I guess they've done a good job with that. I think years of damage take years of reconstruction. But generally, I'm in favor of dominant champions having long dominant reigns, and I think that will go a long way in repairing the image of their titles. Something that Paul Levesque is clearly very much invested in if you've seen his early attempts to fix some of the mid-card titles. And I understand why they're pushing this Roman Reigns title run as a historic all-time title run. And I'm sure at some point they're going to push it as the greatest title run of all time. That's their job, their promoters, right? The job of a wrestling promoter or a boxing promoter or an MMA promoter is essentially the same. To convince you of something and get you to believe it so that you'll buy tickets and spend money to see the greatest or the best, whether it's a champion or a wrestler or a card or a match. But what does a title reign need to truly be considered historic? Well, it probably needs some great matches, right? Probably needs some memorable moments. It has to do great business. It has to be historically significant. I would argue that a truly great title reign needs to cover all of those areas. And I mean, in totality, the reality is this Roman Reigns title reign has been, it's been pretty dull. It's been dull and uninteresting. It has been long, but there really isn't much going on in terms of great matches and historical significance beyond the length or memorable moments or great business. But it doesn't matter. WWE tells us it's been a historical and legendary title reign. So it is. You know, there used to be a time when wrestling fans would call out promoters on that kind of bullshit or just laugh it off but WWE has been masterful in the arts of brainwashing their fan base when it comes to these kind of things. And again, that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it isn't. That's your job as a promoter. And it's not just fans. As I alluded to earlier, they've done a masterful job of, to use an overused term that I don't even think is entirely accurate in this case, co-opting the WWE-friendly media, people who grew up watching Stone Cold, Steve Austin, and The Rock and have that devotion to those three letters that I talked about earlier, which is why that's so important. And a lesson that I learned over the last three or four years since AEW has existed is there's such a large portion of the fan base who never really wanted a strong alternative to WWE. Even when WWE was at its worst, that's not what a certain portion of the fan base ever really wanted. They didn't want a strong alternative. They wanted WWE to be better. Which is why it's been so easy for Paul Levesque since he took over to have all of these roses thrown, both from fans... And the WWE-friendly media for the small, mostly insignificant changes he's made to what largely is the same product that it was before. WWE has done a masterful job convincing people to be loyal to those three letters. To the point that these fans and certain portions of the media and you know who they are are desperate to lap up any small improvements in the product and relating back to the topic at hand are more than willing to accept any narrative that the WWE ever throws their way. Such as Roman Reigns is in the midst of a legendary all-time title reign. My question is based on what? That's great power to have. Don't get me wrong. When you can tell your fan base virtually any absurd thing you want that you want forced into truth. And have them dutifully repeat it. Just by getting Michael Cole to say it a lot. That's great power to have. Listen. That's the Paul Heyman playbook. There's probably few people on earth who have studied Paul Heyman more than I have. What did he do when he was running ECW? He cultivated a rabid fan base. That would do anything for the brand. That would believe anything they were told. Us against the world. A good example of that in relation to this topic is the Eliminators. I like the Eliminators a lot. Saturn and Cronus. Two New England-based wrestlers. They come into ECW as a tag team. And what did Paul Heyman have Joey Styles do every week on TV? Scream at the top of his lungs that the Eliminators were the greatest tag team in wrestling. They told their fans that the Eliminators were the greatest tag team in wrestling so much that eventually the fans just believed it. And again, I enjoy watching the Eliminators to this day. Very creative. Very ahead of their time. Very high spot heavy. Fun act. At no point were they ever realistically the greatest tag team in the business. But Paul Heyman had the power to make ECW fans believe anything that ECW told them. If Joey Styles said it, if Paul Heyman said it through Joey Styles, which is what was really happening, then the fans bought into it. Which is why so many ECW acts flop so badly in WCW and WWE. When their flaws were so badly exposed. But again, that's a conversation for another day. The conversation at hand is, is this truly an all-time great world title reign that we are witnessing With Roman Reigns. And I contend that it's not. It certainly doesn't have the matches. Think about this Roman Reigns title run. First of all, let's just go back to the beginning. Think about this. Don't look it up. When and how did he win the title? The universal title. Some 750 plus days ago. I bet a very large portion of you do not remember the match when he won the title. I bet a very large portion of you could tell me that Bruno San Martino beat Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds to win the WWF title some 60 years ago. I bet every single one of you could tell me who Hulk Hogan beat in Madison Square Garden to win the WWF title. You all know it was the Iron Sheik. Who did Roman Reigns beat to win this title to kick off this legendary title reign? He defeated Braun Strowman and The Fiend in a triple threat match at WWE Payback 2020. Who could forget the classic title win at WWE Payback 2020? All right, so it didn't get off to the most legendary start with a classic match that would be burned into the minds of wrestling fans forever. But surely Roman's had some great matches since, right? Well, I don't know. Name a couple. What's been the best match of this Roman Reigns 750-plus day reign? What's it been? Was it the Drew McIntyre match at Clash at the Castle? Nice little match. Using cage match as a guide. 7.69 on the cage match ratings. Again, nice little match. Maybe it was the John Cena match at SummerSlam, right? Again, on a terrible show. It was a nice little match. That match... uh, didn't rack up match of the year votes or make any match of the year lists for 2021? If it did, I'd love for you to point me to them. Did Roman have a bunch of classic WrestleMania matches during this reign? Burned into your mind forever? Well, he beat Daniel Bryan and Edge. At WrestleMania 37, stacked them on top of one another and beat him. Nice little match again. Is that considered a WrestleMania classic? Is that considered one of the greatest matches in the history of WrestleMania? Is it considered one of the most memorable matches in WrestleMania history? I don't think so. I don't think anybody can realistically say that. How about the unification winner take all match at this year's WrestleMania? Same thing. It's not that Roman's title run has been bad. It just hasn't been particularly memorable. There haven't been a litany of great matches. There haven't been a litany of great moments. Think of some of the most memorable moments of Roman Reigns' title run. You'll probably think of the tractor at this year's SummerSlam with Brock Lesnar. That's a memorable moment. That's B-roll footage forever. We'll all think of the tractor. What are some of the others? Struggling to get the handcuffs off in the Kevin Owens match? Finn Balor and his comically beating heart during that debacle? At whatever show that was, I believe it was Extreme Rules. Was it the community theater stuff at the beginning of the run with the Usos? Matches that quickly turned into memes? It wasn't the title win. It wasn't a litany of match of the year contenders. It's lacking moments which is ironic in a company that emphasizes moments. You take away the tractor. You take away John Cena coming back for rest for uh, SummerSlam. What do you have with this title reign? A nice little Cesaro match at Backlash? Okay. A couple of decent television bouts against Rey Mysterio and Riddle? Okay. Okay. None of this is the makings of a legendary title run. Compare this to other legendary title runs, and we don't even have to leave the company. Bruno Sammartino held the title for 2,803 days. 60 years ago. But you know he beat Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds. You know he sold out MSG a million times in a row. You don't need the history lesson. We know that Bruno established the WWE cage match formula by beating his opponents to a pulp and then swagger walking out of the cage. We know that that happened during Bruno's reign. We know that when he lost to Ivan Koloff, the building was so stunned and shocked and went so silent that some people thought they lost their hearing. That's memorable. That's making moments. That's legendary. And speaking of MSG and Bruno selling it out every month, how about Roman on March 5th of this year, defending his title against Seth Rollins, one of the biggest stars in the company. 6,800 people in the building, under 6,000 paid. That's your needle mover. How about the infamous SmackDown in MSG in September of 2021, where they barely had 7,000 tickets sold, added Roman to the card, and in five or six days pushed a whopping 400 additional tickets before John Cena came in and saved the day before they lied up to 14,000 in the building and bragged about it. That's your needle mover. Bruno sold it out every month. How about Hulk Hogan and his 1,400-plus day initial run with the title? Once again, the same exercise. Think about moments or matches from that Hogan run. You immediately think of slamming Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 3 in front of, well, ask Dave Meltzer how many people were there. I'm not getting into that one. You get the idea. You probably think about WrestleMania 1 with Mr. T. You probably think about WrestleMania 2 and the cage match against King Kong Bundy. Maybe you think about Andre the Giant. Ripping Hulk Hogan's cross off of his chest on Piper's pit. Maybe you think about the two Hebners at the main event. Where Andre and Ted DiBiase came up with the nefarious scheme to get the title off of Hulk Hogan. Again, this is nearly 40 years ago. And these are all memories, moments... That most of you can probably instant recall. And some of you weren't even born when they happened. Rock and wrestling. The most financially successful period of the company to that point in time. That is a legendary title reign. Bruno is a legendary title reign. Go outside the company. Kazuchika Okada, 720 days. All he did during that title reign was have some of the greatest matches in the history of wrestling, three of which against Kenny Omega. Not some of the greatest matches in New Japan history. Some of the greatest matches in wrestling history took place during that 720-day Okada title reign. The three Omega matches. The Shibata match at Sakura Genesis in 2017. The Naito match at Wrestle Kingdom. The Tanahashi match at Dantaku, The Marafuji match at King of Pro Wrestling in 2016. Legendary all-time matches. The Okada Omega series is one of the greatest series of matches... To ever take place in a wrestling ring. Does Roman Reigns have that during this title run with anyone? Nothing even close. Again, if you want to use Cage Match as a guide, the worst match, the worst title match in Okada's 720 day run, based on crowdsourcing, was Bad Luck Falle, a 7.62. A 7.62, according to the inmates at Cage Match. That would rank as one of the best matches of Roman Reigns and his current title run. And the Cage Match inmates, folks, very much love current WWE. The Drew McIntyre match, a Clash of the Castle. Again, nice little match, 7.69. Essentially the same rating as Kazuchika Okada's worst match, Of his title run. And this is one of Roman's best. The match quality just isn't there. The legendary moments. The historical significance. It isn't there. And oh by the way. During Okada's 720 day title run. New Japan experienced the best. Business success. In the history of the company. Going back to 1972. These are facts. They grossed more money during those years than any other year in the history of the company in a country that barely had any inflation since 1972. You could look that up too. So you can't even chalk it up to inflation. Okada's run was a business home run. It was a match quality home run. It was historically significant. It established him as an all-time great. That is a legendary title reign. And you might be saying, Joe, you're comparing Roman Reigns to some of the greatest title reigns of all time. Yeah, that's the point. This isn't one of them. By any measure. The guy put 6,000 people in the Madison Square Garden. 6,000. Joe, it was a house show. Okay. I gave you the SmackDown that bombed. They're setting up raw for 12,000 during this guy's title reign. Numbers that Bruno would have retired in embarrassment over. first half of Roman's run when he was appearing on Smackdown every week with the Usos and Paul Heyman the community theater part of the run quickly ran out of steam I wrote the piece it's behind our paywall ratings dropped like a stone people were so tired of it so quickly creatively inept And ratings have bounced back lately, largely on the curiosity of the Paul Levesque era of the company. And I'm not saying that this title reign is a total dud. It has firmly established this is the tentpole title reign of Roman Reigns' career. There's no question about it. I said at the top, he's doing some of the best work of his life. He's finally gotten over. All of those things are true. But is this a legendary title reign from a historical perspective? It's not. From a business perspective? From the things? Look, we all know the business-to-business money and the revenue WWE drives from those deals. But from the things that title matches and stars and programs and a hot product can control, ticket sales, ratings, has this been a blowaway title reign from a business perspective? Absolutely not. Has it been a legendary all-time title reign in terms of great matches? Absolutely not. Most of the most memorable moments of this title reign have been memes. Finn Balor's heart beating him back to life. Kevin Owens struggling with the handcuffs. Community theater matches with the Usos. Repetitive, boring smackdowns where you couldn't tell whether they were just repeating last week's episode. This is not a legendary all-time title reign. By any measure other than the length. And even then, he's got 2,100 days to go to catch Bruno! But none of that matters. All that matters is WWE will keep pushing it. Michael Cole will keep saying it. The lapdog WWE friendly media will keep repeating it. And it will become reality. And that's why you have to admire what WWE has done and cultivated. This is amazing power to have. They can convince an army of loyal fans of anything. By just saying that it's so. We'll be back. Alright, what do we got here? HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Savor every last second of summer with HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh, quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week, allowing you to enjoy the delicious flavors of the season right from home. Skip the grocery store and spend more time soaking up the last of the summer sun. And everybody knows that Joe Lanza enjoys the summer sun. HelloFresh Market is a one-stop shop for all of your mealtime needs with a curated selection of quick breakfasts, lunches, snacks, desserts, and even more. Gear up for the busy fall season with 55-plus weekly options and take the stress out of meal planning and prepping. From farm-friendly to fit and wholesome, and even veggie, HelloFresh has tasty and nutritious meals Sure to please everyone. HelloFresh will save you time. I enjoy many HelloFresh meals. And I enjoy cooking them. It is so fast and easy. And I enjoy cooking them with my wife, TLB. Go to HelloFresh.com slash VOW16. Use code VOW16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and Three free gifts. Listen to that. If you go to HelloFresh.com slash VOW16 and use code VOW16, you get 16 free meals across seven boxes, and they even give you three free gifts. So uh, HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. All right, so... A couple of quick hitters I want to touch on. I did see over the last few days, and this became a topic of conversation on Twitter, and that is the topic of Sabu botching on purpose, which I know that I've talked about that either on this show or or audio that Rich and I have done at various points over the years. But um, Well, first let me set it up and and, and tell you how this became – a minor topic of uh, discussion a few days ago. Sabu had responded to a fan on Twitter that uh, the fan was defending Sabu. And he tagged Sabu in a tweet that said, I see way too many people talking about Sabu being a botch machine. Nah, son. Sabu's whole appeal was that he'd go hell for leather at all times and shoot for high-risk moves that worked even when they failed. It was exciting and made him must-watch. Dude is a legend. So Sabu sees this, and he responds, and he says, Some of them botches was a work. Camel emoji, smiley face emoji. And Rob Van Dam chimed in, quote-tweeting Sabu, saying, True story. Sabu would slip, quote-unquote, on the top rope, trip and fall, and Dave Meltzer, who he tagged, would write about him missing spots. Sabu liked working the, quote-unquote, smart. I assume he meant smart fans or smarks or something, but uh, that was the Sabu tweet and the Rob Van Dam response. So let me say this, and I've said this before. This was not a secret in real time. Not among smart fans and smarks and newsletter readers and, and people like that. The early... The earliest versions of the IWC, right? For those people who were already on the internet. Uh, Sabu botching on purpose was hardly a secret. I've talked about it before. Uh, You know, this may be the first time that Sabu has admitted to this. I'm sure he's mentioned it over the years, either in shoot interviews or, or, or whatnot. But this is the first time I've seen Sabu admit to botching on purpose. But this, is, this was fairly well known for a number of years, but maybe after time passes, uh, stuff like this just gets lost into the ether. But the mindset with Sabu and the intentional botches, and make no mistake, Sabu botched for real plenty of times. He was not a clean, refined worker. He would try things that were very ambitious. And he was not immune to real botches. I'm not suggesting that Every Sabu botch was some, you know, genius work of, you know, 4D chess coming from Terry Brunk. Okay, that's not what I'm saying here. But it was fairly well known that Sabu would botch on purpose with the mindset being he's the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal maniac. And he was doing things that nobody was doing at the time. And they were reckless and they were dangerous. And the idea was not to be smooth. The idea was not to be flawless. The idea was if he could execute these moves with precision and grace and with smooth execution, then they wouldn't look dangerous. They wouldn't look homicidal, suicidal, and genocidal. So he would fall off the ropes on a springboard move at times. You know, he would set up the chair and then run the ropes and then leap off of the chair. And then do a springboard move to the outside, and sometimes he'd slip off the chair. Sometimes he would slip off the top rope on a springboard or just uh you know, climbing the ropes, or sometimes he would spring off of the chair onto the top rope and then like lose his balance, which also was part of the work. Right? You've seen Sabu a million times go up for a springboard. And he's kind of like, whoa, like re-catching his balance. And then he executes the move, right? All of these things, or a lot of the time, again, not every time, but a lot of the time, this was by design to make his shit look extremely dangerous. And it's hard to imagine now if you didn't see it in real time and you go back and watch the footage because now we've seen everything. We've seen everything a million times. We've seen the stuff that Sabu does. Uh, For years now, if you're of a certain age or you're a newer fan, you go back and watch Sabu, and he's not necessarily going to come off innovative at all at the time he was. But when you go back and watch Sabu, what I still think comes through is that element of danger in his work. There was a real element of danger in Sabu's work, and some of that was because of the botches, both worked and legitimate. I thought Sabu botching, most of the time, enhanced his matches. They, they, they made what he was going for better. Because again, it gave his matches that element of danger. I saw Sabu wrestle live dozens of times at the peak of Sabu, which was probably 1994, 1995, right? When he was really hitting big. And as an independent wrestler was the talk of the wrestling world. During that time. And, you know, sitting in those crowds watching Sabu, you were always waiting for something disastrous to happen. And I mean, it never did. He never broke his neck. Well, Chris Benoit broke his neck on a head drop. But he never uh, suffered a serious injury on a dive or, or had a catastrophic fall or... And he really didn't do daredevil stuff from that standpoint. He wasn't jumping off the crow's nest in the ECW arena. He wasn't doing flip dives off the top of cages, right? But there was still this element of danger to everything surrounding Sabu in his matches to where he would hit those ropes, he would set up that chair, and we'd all start to catch our breath. And he would set up his spots, and he would hit those ropes, and we'd all hold our breath. Because we didn't know whether this guy was going to crash and burn. Or even if he landed, whatever it is he was trying, it was going to result in a crash and burn. Either way, this guy's going to crash and burn. It was just a matter of the severity, whether it was planned or not. There's just an element of danger around this man. And there's no question... That the botches, both intentional and otherwise, added to that aura. He has an indescribable aura live at his peak that I don't think I can convey to people some 25, 26 years later. It's impossible. To describe to you how it felt to watch Sabu live and in real time. And... I think when you go back and watch Sabu footage, the fact that he's not doing anything that would come off particularly innovative to 2022 eyes, but you still pick up on the fact that this dude is different and that there's something special about this guy and that says a lot because there's plenty of stuff in pro wrestling that doesn't stand the test of time and doesn't age well. And doesn't come off as innovative or spectacular as it did in real time. And I'll use another ECW example to hammer home that point. And this is a bit sacrilegious considering who's involved. And I believe I've told this story before too, but uh, the Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko Classic. The Well, they had many matches that were billed as such, but the one... Their final ECW match from the ECW arena that aired on ECW television. The famous guerrero Malenko match that that people talk about. I remember watching that match in real time. And I wasn't at that show. I watched that show on TV at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought it was the greatest wrestling match I had ever seen. Me and my friends were calling each other, which I'm sure our parents loved. On our landlines at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to talk about this fucking match on the phone. Um, You know, no text messaging, you know, no fucking email, none of that shit. Cell phones. So we're waking up our parents calling each other after this match, talking about how great it was. I didn't watch that match again for like, I don't know, 20 years? Maybe a little less, maybe 15 or 18 years later. I watched the match, and Jolanza in 1995, watching that match and and seeing the kind of uh, chain wrestling and counters and near falls and pinning combinations that I had never seen before, thought it was the greatest match I'd ever seen in my life. I got all excited watching it back in, I don't know, 2010 or whatever the fuck. And it was a real leave-the-memories-alone moment. Because, man, after living through Ring of Honor and the indie boom and, you know, uh, TNA X Division and whatever, after 15 years of my eyes seeing all kinds of innovation between 1995 and 2010, the match just did not match my memories. It didn't land in the same way. And I've never watched that match again since. I've seen it twice. I saw it when it first aired, and then I rewatched it while rubbing my hands together and was so let down and hurt by the fact that it didn't live up to what was in my memories that I've never reinvestigated that match again. But do you know who never fails to live up to the memories in my head? Sabu. Sabu. Sabu always lands. Sabu always delivers. I don't care when the match took place. I don't care how many years it's been. I watch Sabu. And I am blown away by his aura and that element of danger and how different and special he is the same way I was in 1994. 1995. Sitting with 400 dirtbags In some VFW hall. Or 2,000 absolute maniacs in the ECW arena. Sabu. Stands the test of time. In ways. That other wrestlers. You know. Leave the memories alone. And that's not to disparage Eddie Guerrero or Dean Malenko. It's the old adage. They weren't wrestling a match for Joe Lanza in 2010. They were wrestling that match for Joe Lanza in 1995. And even though it didn't match my memories, I still consider it one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Because it's the moment that matters when it comes to those things. But man, the stuff that stands the test of time, like Sabu, you know that's that's something special. All right, so very quickly I want to address this John Moxley Nick Gage thing. So Mox is the AEW World Champion again. We all know he wasn't supposed to be. Um, you know we all know whatever happened with CM Punk, all the booking plans were thrown out the window. Mox is uh, losing his vacation. He had to come back and do the company on you the other know, side. Look, John Moxley is the uh, MVP of pro wrestling this year. He is the Flair Thez winner. That version of wrestler of the year, I mean, Moxley's got that locked up in my mind. This is the second time that he has saved this company's ass. And the first time around, he went on one of the best runs of his career. Okay, so to me, Moxley is my Flair Thez vote. And uh, for those of you familiar with the Observer Awards, uh, there's two different Wrestler of the Year awards. There's Most Outstanding, which is just Bell to Bell, no other considerations, who had the best matches, who was the best wrestler. And then there's the Flair Thez MVP, which is another version of Wrestler of the Year, but it takes into account everything. The Bell to Bell work, match quality, promos, star power, drawing power, uh, all of those things. And to me, that's, you know, Moxley's got that baby locked up and it's September 22nd, but uh, at any rate, Moxley is the AEW world champion once again, which presents a problem for game changer wrestling because they had a match booked where Moxley was putting the game changer title up against the career of Nick Gage. So when this was all booked out, it seems pretty clear that the idea would be Moxley would kind of be on his sabbatical or his vacation or his break from AEW. Um, wasn't going to be any kind of title holder, and maybe uh, you know a proper deal was made with AEW and Tony Khan to where that'd be a good time to where Moxley could lose a match, and Tony Khan would be okay with that because AEW wrestlers just do not lose indie matches. It is incredibly rare, and it has become even more rare as time has marched on. And I've had promoters tell me directly, "You want to book an AEW wrestler? You are told uh, yes or no as to whether you could have that wrestler, and the condition is they are up." They are winning that match, period, okay? So, obviously, when it comes to someone like Moxley, top star. um, Now, Moxley has a little bit of stroke being a big star. He has lost in Game Changer before. He lost to Josh Barnett at Bloodsport, which is, you know, it's a Game Changer promoted show, but it's kind of an offshoot, and I don't know. Maybe he lobbied Tony Khan to lose that. Maybe Khan felt with the Bloodsport concept it was okay to lose that. I don't know all the politics or machinations behind that. But it's not completely out of the realm that, uh, you know, Game Changer knew that they could beat Moxley during this little sliver of time. So they added this stipulation where Gage has to retire if he doesn't win. And, you know, obviously, uh, most people think the plan was for Gage to win the match, win the title. Uh, Maybe at that point it writes Moxley out of the company for a while or for good or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's the conclusion to this story. But now that AEW got turned upside down and had to put their world title back on Moxley, uh, there is pretty much 0% chance that Tony Khan is going to sign off on Nick Gage pinning Jon Moxley in the middle uh, and pinning his world champion on an independent show. That's just not going to happen. I would be beyond stunned. Surprised doesn't describe it. Shocked doesn't – I mean, I don't even have an adjective to tell you uh, how I would feel about that if I saw that go down. Okay, so now the talk is – How does Game Changer get out of this? And uh, my feeling on this is, who the fuck cares? How's this even a topic of discussion? It's Game Changer wrestling. Okay? This isn't, you know, this isn't 1991, you know, giant baba all Japan. Where, you know, you gotta make sure you're carefully protecting everything. It's Game Changer wrestling. Gage doesn't have to honor that stip. Mox can give him the paradigm shift in the center of the ring, pin him clean in the middle, and Gage can pick up the microphone in the post-match and start cursing, talking about cell blocks. You know, and say, I'm Nick fucking Gage. I'm uh, gang affiliated. Fuck. I'm in a motherfucking gang. Fuck. Cell block C, represent. And uh, fuck you, Nick Gage doesn't retire till he's dead. And the crowd's just going to go crazy. The mutants in the Game Changer crowd will just go crazy for that. They're not going to give a shit. Do you think if Nick Gage just decides not to honor that stip that Game Changer fans are going to chant refund and, uh, and never come back? They don't care. They're there to get drunk and have a good time. This isn't all Japan, circa 1990. This isn't, uh, you know, this isn't Sam Mushnick uh, wrestling at the chase that we're talking about. It's game changer wrestling. It's a trash promotion. They don't, it, it doesn't matter. There's a million ways they can get out of this. This is not a huge controversy. Mox can beat the guy. Here you go. This one's free, Brett. Mox can beat the guy. And you can have a bunch of heels come down. I don't watch Game Changer anymore. I wouldn't watch Game Changer if you tied me to a chair and pinned my eyelids open. But, you know, whoever the hot heels are in the company, I don't know who they are. I know a bunch of guys are doing the Circle Six thing and there's all that controversy, so I don't think Ricky Shane Page and the Ohio guys are there anymore. And I don't know if what's going on with, like, you know, the Matthew Justice and AJ Gray faction. Look, I don't follow the promotion. But whoever the... You know, current hot heels are, or whatever. They can come down and beat down Moxley. And then, you know, Gage can slowly recover from the paradigm shift, and the crowd will notice what's happening here. They'll get behind Gage, saving Moxley. And you could set up some big tag team match down the line where Moxley says, you know what? I ended this man's career, but I demand you reinstate him so me and Nick Gage can kick the shit. Out of Ricky Shane Page and uh, whoever the fuck. Atticus uh, Cougar. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And I get it. Those guys aren't there anymore. You you get the point, though. I don't know who's there. It's game changer. You can do whatever you want. You know, you know, you know they don't tell stories there anyway. You can do whatever you want. You have free reign. Those fans, they don't give a shit. They just want to come, get drunk. Hang out. Pretend they're in a fake gang with Nick Gage. And then, you know, after the show, go off and do whatever it is those mutants do. That That's what their fans want. This isn't a big deal. So for a topic I'm saying that nobody should care about, I've just spent 10 minutes on it. That's what I do. That is a top podcast. But seriously, what's the problem here? There's a million ways to get out of this. Plus, it's Nick Gage. Have you seen him wrestle the last few times he's been in a ring? Maybe he does want to retire. Has anyone considered that? I mean, I doubt it, but it's not impossible. honoring a wrestling stipulation that's not exactly, you know, gang affiliated behavior. He don't have to honor that shit. Half the people don't even know what the, the stipulation Let me tell you something. When's the next Game Changer show? It's probably 10 minutes from now since they they are always running. Okay? At the next Game Changer show, whenever or wherever that is, I would be willing to bet that however many people are there, if it's 200 people, then 100 people. If it's 500 people, then 250 people. If it's 1,000 people, then at least 500 people there probably aren't even aware who the champions are in this company. Nobody gives a shit about Game Changer Wrestling champions or storylines. No one cares. Not the people there. Not anybody else. It's Game Changer Wrestling. That's not the appeal. The appeal is Nick Gage... Is going to throw up gang signs. And you get to pretend you're in a gang for three hours. That's the appeal. You're going to drink some Pabst Blue Ribbon. With your buddies. Okay. And you're going to mark out with MLJ. God bless him. Guy has the time of his life at these shows. With the ring announcing. And it's like a little community get together. Every 16 seconds when they have their shows. That's what it is. No one cares about the storylines. It does not matter. It will never matter. So don't worry about it if you're a Game Changer fan. Don't worry about the dopey stipulation and how they're going to get out of this. They can just ignore it if they want. Pretend they never said it. No one will care. It's Game Changer wrestling, people. All right, so let's talk about this... uh, AW Grand Slam. So we're going to review this show. We're going to do our Thursday Dynamite review on the flagship this week. Normally this content can only be heard behind our paywall on the $5 tier where each and every week give a extensive and detailed Dynamite review like you're going to hear right now for free. So consider a subscription. Uh, first, the ratings. Those of you who are subscribers know that we haven't talked ratings in a few weeks on the uh, on the Dynamite review because of my recording schedule. The ratings weren't uh, available. But we do have the ratings here to discuss today. They did a point three five one 1.039 million viewers. That was good for number one on the week. Um, I personally thought the show would do about a point four two somewhere in that neighborhood. The the debut of Survivor was the chief competition for those of you who uh, who keep up with what these shows are going up against. I thought between point three five and point four two was the range, and I thought it would do somewhere around a point three eight to a point four. But I thought anywhere between point three five on the low end and point four two on the higher end would kind of be where this show would settle. Uh, So it ended up on the lower end. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think, based on the last few weeks, that that AEW should be thrilled with this number. Um, But it was on the lower end of my expectations. For those of you that are into the total viewership, this is now, I believe, the fifth week in a row that Dynamite has averaged over a million viewers. And without looking at any charts, I don't know if they have ever done that before, if they have. They haven't done it in a while. So, from the total viewership standpoint, if you're into that, this was another good week where they crossed that arbitrary 1 million uh, average viewer mark. And in terms of the demo, look, they finished number one on the night. And you can never really complain about that. And But they were on the lower end of my expectations. I think if it would have come in any lower than 0.35, then that would have been really bad news. But this is just... I would call this, if I'm in the room, my initial reaction when I saw the number was, oh, that's slightly disappointing. So I think that's probably the feeling in the room. I'm sure Tony Khan's on Twitter touting it as another, you know, number one on Wednesday and all that. And that's his job. And um, look, there's nothing wrong with these numbers. I would just call it a slight disappointment. Overall, I think their TV, I think Dynamite is doing very well. I mean, as I said, Five straight weeks over a million viewers. Um, their demo numbers have been very strong. They're very often and and, and and usually number one for the night. In terms of the event, they did do the one a $1 million gate. So they sold less tickets. And I haven't seen the latest on the tickets. I think there was probably somewhere around 13,000. Don't quote me on any of this. But there's probably about 13,000 people in the building with uh, – upwards of uh, 12 around 12,000 uh, tickets sold probably in that neighborhood which was significantly less uh, than the number of people in the building last year but a significantly higher gate this one million dollar gate is one of the very few million dollar gates for a television taping um, you know in, in 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 wrestling history or at least recent wrestling history that just doesn't happen very often for either company so, Uh, A significant gate. This is AEW's first million-dollar gate for TV ever. They've done it for pay-per-view a number of times, and they've done it for their most recent pay-per-view and uh, pay-per-views, but this is a million-dollar gate for TV. So how did they do that with uh, thousands of less people in the building? Well, they raised their ticket prices significantly for this show. What Tony Khan did here was this was sort of the WWE strategy that Rich and I have talked about where – Their mindset and their strategy is book the biggest buildings you can, sell as many tickets as you can, and if we have to tell our cameras to avoid a half-empty football stadium, so be it. If it means we're still going to sell 35,000 tickets, we'll take that. We don't care that half the building's empty. If we have to curtain off half of a basketball arena, so be it. Okay, Because we want to sell every last ticket possible. And have the highest gates possible. That's been the modern WWE mindset. Whereas Tony Khan has been more uh, conservative in his approach. There have been situations where he's run towns for the first time. Where he could have run bigger buildings. But instead uh, was more conservative with slightly smaller buildings that he, that he felt he could fill. Uh, AEW tickets also have been, uh, you know, in a lot of cases cheaper than WWE tickets. Again with the idea of, let's fill the buildings. Reasonable ticket prices, smaller buildings, let's get those sellouts. This kind of rant runs counter to the usual conservative Tony Khan approach. He jacked the ticket prices up for this, probably knowing full well that he was going to sell less tickets. He probably knew he was going to sell less tickets either way. You could only do something for the first time once, right? So last year, in addition to being a loaded card, had the added appeal of being the first time in Arthur Ashe Stadium and uh, and being in New York City and all that. So they probably recognized they weren't going to match that number regardless. So why not jack up the ticket prices, sell maybe a couple thousand less than even, uh, you know, we're going to do the second time around, but make more money in the process and do a bigger gate. And that strategy seemed to have worked because they did hit that, You know, you can call it, much like doing a million viewers, the arbitrary million-dollar gate number. That nice, round, seven-figure number. And they hit it. So from that standpoint, Grand Slam, one of the biggest gates in company history, Um, an excellent Dynamite. I haven't read any Rampage spoilers, and I don't know anything about the Rampage, but I know that Dynamite was excellent. And they were number one on cable again and did over a million viewers, if you're into the million-viewer thing. So uh, when you look at all of that in totality, very successful show. No other way to slice it. Very successful show. Um, And they've been on a good run here. I mean, you know, the elephant in the room aside, and we'll see if the dust ever settles on that, Outside of a slightly disappointing pay per view number for All Out, you know, things have been coming up roses for AEW, and I think that kind of gets obscured because everybody is so focused on the CM Punk and Elite stuff. And for some reason, there seems to be this idea that they're struggling right now, but the business doesn't tell us that. Their television numbers don't tell us that they're struggling. Uh, they just did another million dollar gate. As far as the on screen product, all the shows still rock. I mean, there was that one Dynamite that I didn't love, but for the most part, I think like six of the last seven Dynamites something have been great. Uh, Forbidden Door was more successful than anybody thought it would be. All Out didn't do what I would call a uh, impressive number of pay per view buys, but you know did good live business. So. Um, I understand where the doom and gloom is coming from. It's pretty obvious where it's coming from. And when you contrast that with, and this is starting to cool off too a little bit, but when you contrast that with all of the roses being thrown at the Paul Levesque era, the early Paul Levesque era of WWE, it sort of paints this Um, unnecessarily negative picture on what's going on in AEW. I think their business is pretty strong right now. Um, They aren't as hot as they were about a year ago, but you you know, when you really dig into the numbers, they're not that far off. They really aren't, and actually, I think it'd be interesting to do a comparison to because everybody feels like, and I mean, I just said it too, that they were super hot last year around this time, and this year, well, I think it'd be interesting to do a side-by-side comparison of that. I mean, you're not going to match the return of CM Punk. You know, but once that's settled down to some extent, I I think it'd be interesting to compare to this year's numbers. So, um, and you know, I I, I do think WWE taking some of the attention away from AEW with uh, everybody praising, and again, that's starting to cool off if you haven't noticed. You know, the Raws and the SmackDowns, you know, that honeymoon is uh is over now. And you know, when your top when your top program and the thing getting the most attention on your T V is centered around Dominic, and you have Dexter Lumas cutting through the ring mat, you know, and threatening to murder the Miz, I mean this isn't a company with a bunch of hot angles, I can tell you that. Which probably explains why football comes back and they're doing less than 1.6 million viewers again. I mean, let's be honest. This wasn't, this was never the super compelling television that the lapdog, clapping like seals, WWE-friendly wrestling media was telling you it was. It just wasn't. There were minor changes made to a dreadful product. And that's why everybody's watching football now. The big question for Raw is, when football is over, will all of those viewers that they gained back out of Paul Levesque curiosity return, or is the habit now broken? That's the question. Because very clearly, a lot of people returned to the product to see how Triple H was going to handle things, make changes, present the product, what was going to be different from Vince? And they made all of these surface-level small changes that seemingly were pleasing a lot of people. But then when the rubber hit the road and football came back, they all hit the bricks. And they're watching the Bills blow out the Titans instead of Dexter Lumas cutting through the mat with a knife. You know, so maybe Dominic, who everyone is, you know, ironically into all of a sudden... Maybe it really is just ironically into that because it's not enough to keep people away from the football. I mean, you expect them to drop, but I did not expect them to drop all the way back down to end of Vince levels when the football returned. That tells me that this alleged, super awesome, great, rejuvenated WWE product wasn't nearly as compelling as some people were leading you to believe. I was never fooled by that. Go listen to the tape. I watched it every week, and I was the lone voice in a sea of insanity telling you these shows aren't that good. These shows are still painfully boring. They're just not terrible anymore. They're competent, boring television shows. And now we see if people come back after football or... or Five months, six months on, when football's over, they think to themselves, hey, you know what? I got it out of my system. It doesn't have a lot of buzz. It wasn't that great before the football started. The habit's broken. And then you have to work to win them back again. And my gut is telling me that that's what's going to happen. Football will end. They'll get a few back. And then it's really going to determine what happens with the raw ratings. Is what they've got cooked up for the Royal Rumble. Maybe a Cody return. Maybe Sasha comes back at some point between now and then. Maybe a Fiend. Comes back between now and then. Because those are the big shots. Dexter Lumas and and fucking Ashante the Adonis and Top Dalla. And uh, people like this. um, You know... These are nice fan service moves. Okay? Io Sky, who never really went anywhere. Dakota Kai coming back. Which, to a lot of WWE fans, again, they never really saw her anywhere else. She just, you know, now she's back on TV. These are all nice little fan service moves. But they haven't fired any big guns yet. And maybe Paul is smart enough to know that you got to save those big guns for... Let's see how football affects us. And they've destroyed totally obliterated them and destroyed them. And now let's counter the football with Sasha Banks and the fiend and getting Cody back in the mix. At some point, those are your big shots. They haven't fired any big shots. And that is what I've been was warning about for weeks and weeks. What, what are the big angles on these shows? These, these alleged supposed great shows. What are the big angles? What are the buzzworthy match of the year level matches? What, what's so great about these shows other than the collective wrestling media <coughs> clapping like seals because the matches on average are two and a half minutes longer and because Michael Cole said PWG. I, I mean, what really, what's the hook? Where are the hooks on these shows? This is why everybody's watching Monday Night Football now. So now we see if we could slowly win some of those people back. And by the way, there's two Monday Night Football games again week eight. Another double Monday Night Football night. Um, So that competition is not going to let up. And now we see, can you get these people back after football? I mean, they better kick this into high gear. Do some big storylines. Create some hot angles. Roman is still in the same holding pattern he's been in for the last 700 days. There's nothing exciting about that. They're just biding their time until they can get The Rock. If they can get The Rock. Then Roman will beat him at WrestleMania. Then what? Then what? Who are we building in the interim to be the guy to, to beat Roman after Roman beats The Rock? If The Rock even ever does that match. Then what? So there's nothing going on with Roman. That storyline is just it's it's just dull. There's nothing happening. He beats the challenger in a month and moves on to the next one while Heyman makes funny faces. So what's the big storyline? It's Dominic, who nobody will ever care about, unironically. What else you got going on? Mad Cat Moss is going to be the guy? Well, we better hurry up on that. We're going to turn up the dial on this or what? Who else? What's next? Braun Braekar coming up? Carmelo Hayes? Well, let's shit get off the pot because someone needs to be ready. Who's it going to be? There's like a lack of – who else is there? I just ran through all of them. Is it Cody? Cody's going to be the one? Well, he's pushing 40. I mean, you know, who's next? Cena at the end, we knew Roman was next. Who's next? The person doesn't exist. And that's a big problem, too. I don't know. I I feel like the honeymoon is ending. I feel like the honeymoon is ending. Now let's see. I think Triple H was too lackadaisical in that five or six week period where he had everybody's attention. He could have ran something big. And he didn't. Because he was getting all these accolades, they knew they can get by with these little changes, which in the grand scheme were meaningless, tiny changes. There was no hook, and there's still no hook. You have all of these resources, and this great roster, and NXT, and who are they getting behind more than anybody else on the show aside from Roman, with his holding pattern, boring-ass storyline? Dominic! That's why less than 1.6 million people watched Raw last week. So anyway, that's the return of ratings talk on the Thursday Dynamite Review. Let's talk about the show. We open up hot with Jericho. Chris Jericho challenging Claudio Castagnoli for the Ring of Honor World Title. Ian Ricabone is on commentary. Great guy, Ian Ricabone. Carry Silkin is at ringside. How many uh, Grand Slam seats did he scalp last night? I should be nice to Carry. I don't know if he still scalps tickets, okay? So uh, Silkin was actually there for a reason. Jericho attacked him. Went after Carrie. The commentators are going nuts, saying this man had neck injuries and everything. So Jericho very quickly healing himself. In a very nasty way by attacking, uh, you know, poor old Carrie Silk in a ringside here. So, anyway, Jericho did take the giant swing. Cesaro has not. Cesaro, Claudio, has not done uh, a lot of these giant swings. He's not doing it every single match. This isn't WWE where you have to hit your five signature moves every night. It's this is this is why I prefer the AEW product to the WWE product. It feels like a wrestling show. Whereas WWE feels like a television production of a wrestling show. It's it's inorganic. It doesn't feel like a wrestling show. There's really no other way to put it. It feels like a stage production of a wrestling show. And one of the minor differences is somebody like Claudio Castagnoli knows that he doesn't have to do... The same three or four signature moves that get the WWE fans to respond like, you know, Pavlov's dogs. Like, it's just, ugh. You know, and that's what I mean. You know, Triple H could have Michael Cole talk about wrestlers from the 70s and make a PWG passing reference and use the word wrestling twice an hour. It's going to take more than that to rope me back in. Because it still feels, looks, and uh, and really is booked just like Vince McMahon's wrestling with distraction finishes up and down the show and the goofiness with Dexter Loomis and 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 Domin- and Subnick and uh and, and you know the bad comedy and yeah it's no different than Vince's uh it's you know it's the same show and and they're not going to win me back and they're not going to keep people away from football Doing the same show except with Michael Cole saying the, saying the word wrestler every other week. Um, so Claudio does the giant swing here. Jericho takes it like a champ. Turns it into a slingshot. And uh, Jericho comes out of the corner. Claudio gives him the European uppercut for the first really good near fall of the match. Jericho goes for Floyd. Now the big story here was Jericho questioned whether to do... Uh, the Code of Honor, but he did shake Claudio's hand at the start of the match, but that didn't stop him from incorporating Floyd into the match. And then uh, uh, Claudio nips that in the bud, but gets tied up with the ref in the corner. Jericho kicks him in the balls and then gives him the Judas effect to win the title. So the story here is the sports entertainer honored the Code of Honor, but then broke it during the meat of the match and cheated to win a title that you are not supposed to cheat to win. So, um, look, to me, the first thing I thought about, and I don't know anything, is that maybe this was a tip-off to a television deal. Because think about it. If Tony finally secured some kind of TV deal for Ring of Honor, no offense to Claudio Castagnoli. I love Claudio Castagnoli. I love the way this company pushes Claudio Castagnoli. I love how happy Claudio looks working in this company. I love the matches that he's had. But if I'm trying to get a television show off the ground, who do I want that show built around? Claudio Castagnoli or Chris Jericho? The answer is easy. It's the same reason Chris Jericho was the first AEW champion in 2019 and why that was undoubtedly the correct call. So I don't know that they have a deal. I don't know that they feel if they're close to a deal. It's just something to think about. Could this title being on Chris Jericho mean that they either have a television deal in place or are they or or, or that they're closer to one? It's possible. It could also just be the natural advancement of this Daniel Garcia storyline, who is already the ROH pure champion. And now we'll have to see what Daniel Garcia thinks about Chris Jericho cheating. To win the ROH world title. It could also just be something as simple as that. But um, Jericho wins. What's interesting here. Is Jericho is now the ROH world champion. Without ever having wrestled in ROH. And he won the ROH world title in an AEW ring. Chris Jericho won the WCW title. In a WWF ring. So here he's won two versions of these world titles. But won them. In other companies, which I think is interesting too. Uh, the crowd was red hot for this. They were red hot for this whole show. Well, not the whole show. We'll get to some matches where they, they were uh, decidedly cooled off. But as a total package, I, look, I'm feeling generous. I'll go notebook on this. Four stars flat. Chris Jericho winning the ROH title from Claudio Castagnoli. Next up, we had Swerve in Our Glory versus The Acclaimed. And as uh, everybody on earth was able to surmise and and predict the acclaimed are the new tag team champions. And they did get a pop that would have blown the roof off of this building. If this building had a roof, I mean, you would have thought Serena Williams was, uh, was back on center court, was back on uh, the court here at Arthur Ashe stadium uh, with the pop that the acclaimed got after they won these tag team titles. And now we get to see, uh, will Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland split Um, what's next? For those two guys, now that they've lost the titles, you had to do this. Whether this was the long-term plan or not, The this is a situation where the fans demanded this title change. They did it at the right place. For all those people who were calling for the dopey audible at the pay-per-view, imagine not getting this moment because you called some dopey audible at the pay-per-view. So this was handled perfectly by the company. Um, I've seen some people complain about the Billy Gunn stuff at the end with the with the uh you know, famous whatever you call that fucking uh movie does. Uh, look, I don't mind any of that. Okay. This match and this finish was a party for the people that were there to see the acclaim win the titles. They wanted to the pop for the title win. They wanted to the pop for Billy Gunn. They wanted to the pop for scissor me daddy. So all of this was fine with me. I don't need this to be for Ness and Crawford. Versus, uh, you know, Kikuchi and, uh, you know in 1992. I don't need that. I, this needed to be exactly what it was. And so I have no problem with the Billy Gunn stuff. Um, sometimes you got to take off your nerd hat and just enjoy what's happening in front of you. And that's what this was. So I don't know if the acclaimed are going to enjoy a long title run. I'll tell you who I'm happy for, and that's Anthony Bowens. Anthony Bowens is a guy who longtime listeners of this show know that I've been pushing to get on national TV for years. A guy that looks like that, okay, with that look, and his ability, and his charisma, and, you know, he earned this. And this was, I know this was a big moment for him. I know it was. So I feel good for him. Give Tony Khan credit. You may have heard him mention it once, once or twice before, but he put together this acclaimed act, and you all know the lore. The fanless shows, okay, in uh, during the heat uh, during the uh, you know the heart of COVID, and for this act to come so far, after being put together on a hunch by Tony Khan, this is one of Tony Khan's big wins. There really is. So, um, you've got to be a super super nerd, or just a joyless uh, uh, being. To not not throw this one in the notebook. Four stars as the acclaimed win the tag team titles. So we had Lexi with FTR. And they start talking about all the titles they have and how they're the number one contenders. They're interrupted by the ass boys who enter the scene. And I don't know about you. I'm watching the ass boys talk this shit to FTR. And they totally came off like they were doing the young bucks heel routine. They were like the young bucks that we have at home is what the ass boys were here. Um, but look, I look, I don't mind them getting a push as part of the firm, you know, and um ultimately they lost a few to the acclaim, but now they're moving on to something different and I, you know, you want to put them in there with FTR for now. I don't have a problem with that. So, this will be a nice little mid-card feud. To uh, and who knows? I mean, you know, they they you know being with Stokely and being loosely associated with MJF, um, maybe they start winning some feuds. We have Tony Schiavone with Wheeler, Utah. MJF interrupts. He gets an enormous, incredible pop. Here's the thing with MJF. He's gonna get these gigantic, enormous, incredible pops in every single building he's in. Especially so, the closer you are to Long Island. And this was Queens, New York. Tons of fans from Long Island. Tons of fans from, you know, the New York area, obviously. But this is going to happen everywhere. And the reason is because he is now seen as an enormous pro wrestling star. And he's getting the star pop. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is if when he wrestles other baby faces, that are at his level. If the fans side with him. And and the thing about the AEW fans. is They will give MJF the star pop. But I feel like. That once he's in there. With a big baby face star. AEW has the kind of fans. That don't want to reject the product. Don't want to shit on the company. And the direction that the company is trying to go. And they have fans. Who want to play along and go along with the story. So I don't think it's a big deal that MJF gets these star pops when he comes out, right? Um, And I think if he's in there with comparable stars, it's not going to be an issue once he has matches with people. Now, a match against Wheeler, Utah, which it appears they're going to do, okay? That might be a situation where you're in danger of MJF getting cheered, depending what building you're in. But stars on his level... I don't think that will happen. He comes out. He calls Shivani a fat old prick. He's calling uh, Wheeler Utah wheelsy. And he totally ate up Wheeler Utah in this segment. This is a promo promotion. We all know that. And if you can't hang on the stick, you are going to get eaten alive by MJF, Eddie Kingston, John Moxley, CM Punk if he ever comes back. Go right down the line. There are way too many great promo men in this company to be mediocre on the stick. This is why I pick on Jungle Boy. He will never be a top star in this company until he exhibits the ability to match these other top stars on the stick. And we saw Wheeler, Utah get eaten up here by MJF. And fans are going to get behind and cheer the person who they perceive as cooler in a scenario like this. Where the star power is imbalanced. And that's a problem. And I know Jungle Boy didn't even wrestle or appear on this show. And I'm picking on him again. But I am still hedging my bets on that guy getting all the way to the top. Because he can't cut a promo. And I don't get the impression he'll ever be able to cut a top level promo. So the same for Utah. Who's an excellent wrestler. But man was he out of his league here. So... uh MJF is uh, on the wrong end of the physical confrontation, and W. Morrissey comes out to make the save. This after MJF threw insults at all of Wheeler, Utah's buddies. He said that Brian da- Brian Danielson is a uh, injury-prone uh, guy with uh, with a brain uh, of scrambled eggs. He called Moxley a crazy person. He said Regal is a pill popper. So, Wheeler, Utah, attacked him. Morrissey came out and made the save. So, MJF's the kind of guy, he should always have a heavy. And he should always have either a heavy or a stable behind him. And that's what he has here with the firm. And uh, no no Stokely Hathaway tonight. He didn't appear with the ass boys. He didn't appear here unless I missed him. So, and then... uh, MJF knocked out Wheeler Utah, you know, with the with the with the ring. So we had Shivani in the back. This after Tony Shivani got physically assaulted in the previous segment. So this is kind of awkward, but they did make it clear that this was a pre-tape earlier in the night. And he's there with Jade and the baddies. Diamante enters the scene again. She has been promising um, someone from the Miami area, and it turns out that it's Trina. That's right, everybody. Diamante's big surprise was Trina. Contain your excitement for Trina. As AEW continues their obsession with musicians. Now look, I got a lot to say. Number one, we always all have the same stupid discussion anytime one of these wrestling promotions rolls out a moderately famous uh, musician or a celebrity of any kind. The people who recognize the celebrity, in this case, Trina, okay, they get mad at all the people who say, who? Who is this? I don't know this person. So that all the people who do know the person – Act all high and mighty. How do you not know who Trina is? This Trina is very famous. You're a loser if you don't know who Trina is. And then all the people who don't know who Trina is do the opposite. Who is Trina? Nobody cares about Trina. I don't know who Trina is, so nobody must know who Trina is. And I must say, both sides of this coin are annoying as fuck. The bottom line here is I am tired of these dopey musicians, whoever it is, Bad Bunny, Trina, uh the Dope on Rampage last night, action Bronson. I'm tired of all of them. I have loved pro wrestling for decades. I, like, my, like most normal people, am also a fan of music. I have never once in my wrestling fandom thought to myself, you know, I'm really enjoying this wrestling. This Brett the Hitman heart, he can really go. You know what would be great though? If Eddie Vedder took on Brett the Hitman Hart. That would really get me going as a fan. Never. Never did I think to myself, you know, this is a great song. I sure do enjoy listening to Elvis Costello. You know, that gets me to thinking. Wouldn't it be something... If Elvis Costello took on Greg the Hammer Valentine at SummerSlam, that'd be a happening. Not once did that ever cross my mind. I don't think anybody ever thought, wow, you know, this Dory Funk Jr., he's something. This is some NWA world title run that this man is on. But you know what? You know who he's never defeated? Smoky Robinson. Until Dory Funk Jr. has the guts to get in there with Smokey Robinson. I don't think he can handle that Motown heat. I just don't. Maybe it's just me. Who is this for? I mean, really, who is this for? Wrestling fans don't want this. Fans of Trina, do you think they care about this? I mean, seriously, do you think fans of Trina are going to flock to their local box office and start buying AEW tickets because she's going to stand in Diamante's corner when she gets squashed by uh, uh, by uh, Jade Cargill? Now, look, I get it, and I understand why these promotions book these people. Okay? All right, she's probably got 2.5 million Twitter followers, and you're going to get – she's going to hopefully retweet – The AEW timeline, and in theory, you can gain a few new fans. But let's be realistic about this. Let's be realistic about this. How many Trina fans are going to be converted to AEW fans based off of whatever dopey little angle they do here? How many? Realistically, give me a real number. It's going to be closer to zero than any significant number. We all know this. So I get it. It doesn't really do any harm. I understand. But does it really help you? Does it? Lest we forget. Kevin Gates. Showing up in AEW. And sparking a hot period. This shit never matters. This is too much of it. I understand it. But there's too much of it. And really, in modern society, there's less and less famous people who truly are well known by the greater populace. It just doesn't exist anymore. Fame is different now. In 1985, Everyone, your fucking grandmother, everybody on the street knew who Madonna was and Michael Jackson. And to circle this back to wrestling, Cyndi Lauper. Okay, because media consumption was different. We all listened to the same six radio stations in whatever town we lived in. We all watched the same three networks on TV and the same 30 cable networks. We were all exposed to the same media. So whether you liked Madonna's music or not, you had no choice but to be exposed to her. If I don't like Bad Bunny's music today, it's easily avoidable. So it's completely understandable if somebody doesn't know who Bad Bunny is. Media consumption is choose your own path these days. Nobody hops in the car and puts on the local radio station anymore. You put on Spotify, you put on Pandora, whatever the fuck, and it's tailored for you. Don't act like everyone knows who Kevin Gates is. They don't. I don't care how many social media followers he has. Those people know who he is. So this is even less effective than it's been in the past. In the same daft argument every time from both sides. I mean, who asked for this? Who is this for? Trina, who's this for? Yeah, this Buck Robley. He's been running roughshod through my favorite wrestling territory. If only Roy Orbison could get a hold of this guy and teach him a lesson. Wouldn't that be something? Orange Cassidy takes on Pac. Pretty good match here, but heatless. Crowd just wasn't into this. You know what it was? They were just so overwhelmed at the sight of Trina, music superstar. That this was just too overwhelming for them. They, they needed a co- what we needed here. I'm gonna tell you what needed to happen. We needed a cool down period. You can't roll out someone with the star power of a Trina and expect people to be into Orange Cassidy versus Pac. You can't do that to people. She's got two million Twitter followers. Um. Pac wins the match. We had the four-way for the women's interim fake thing. Um, it was fine. Tony Storm, little school school girl roll-up, I guess you want want to call it. Britt busted her nose again, had the bloody nose. But the big story here wasn't the match. It was the debut of Soraya, FKA Page. Surprise number one on the night. I did see the Rampage surprise. I didn't see Rampage spoilers. But I know who showed up at Rampage. And for the benefit of people who are going to listen to this before they watch Rampage. I'm not going to talk about it. But I'm sure we'll talk about it plenty. Down the line on future audio. Look, you know. If Paige gets you excited, I get it. She was a pretty big star at one point. I understand bringing her in. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Did this do much for me? Not really. Not really. I, I'm very neutral on Soraya. Bring her in? Okay. Now it sounds like she's going to wrestle based on the way the announcers were talking. So if she's healthy enough to go, she's healthy enough to go. Good for her. She looked excited to be there. Gives a little juice to the division. We get another Darby Allen video hyping up his match for Rampage. And then we had our main event. Moxley and Danielson, main event. Finals of the tournament to determine a new AEW world champion. I thought this was a good match, but and, and I thought it was great down the stretch, but I don't know. I don't think it was a great match. Is that controversial? What do people think of this? I thought it was a good match. Don't get me wrong. Let me look this up because I don't know. We're a few hours into the cage match. Let's see what they thought. Probably should have done this before the show. Grand Slam. All right. So Grand Slam as a whole on the cage match is sitting at 8.03. I'd say that's a fair rating. And... This match is at 8.22, which converts roughly to a little over four. That's fair. I'd have it three and three quarters or four myself. Um, You know, I'm not going to knock either guy. They've both had great years. And I'm not going to kill them for a four-star match. But uh, I don't know. I just didn't think it was a great match. Did anyone think it was a great match? Maybe I'm not alone. I don't know. Um, But Moxley's the champ. I'm telling you, he's the MVP of the wrestling world this year. I try to imagine where AEW would be this year without this guy. Considering everything that's happened in that company. So, um. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's uh I think they should show MJF a little bit more on the split screen. I don't think we got the full idea that he was watching this match. What do you think, guys? My God. Can we put the subtlety hammer away? How annoying was this? This was very WWE-like, where you have to spoon-feed their viewers because, you know, half of them are children and the other half are senior citizens. But it's like, did we need these constant wide shots and split screens to make sure that we saw MJF making funny faces at the ring? Did we really need that? Can you just establish that he's there? Okay. Show him once or twice during the big moments and let the match happen and let the match breathe. You know, this will go over a lot of heads if you're a college football fan who wa- who's who been watching the Notre Dame games. You're, you will understand this one. This was like watching Marcus Freeman on the sideline. You know, while the Notre Dame game is breaking out in between camera shots of Marcus Freeman, who they never stopped showing on camera on NBC during these Notre Dame games. You think you're watching a Marcus Freeman documentary? He's the head coach. You see, he gets more face time than, uh, you know, the game does itself. That's what this was like with MJF. It was ridiculous. And maybe it took away from the match a little bit, watching him up there with his stupid poker chip. And let me tell you something. If they're going to treat this thing like a cash-in, I'm going to destroy that and get out of my way. This is going to be the rant to end all rants. This is going to be like that Dynamite at the end of 2019 uh, where I just totally destroyed the company. If MJF cashes this thing in WWE Money in the Bank style and and that would fit MJF's character to a T. But I don't want that shit in my non-WWE wrestling. I'm tired of that trope over there with a company I don't give a shit about where they've already shit on all of their titles for years and years. Don't drag that bullshit into the wrestling I actually like watching. Please. And Tony Khan was very vague on that subject when asked. MJF was very vague on that subject. And Tony Khan sure made it sound like this chip can be cashed in at any time. If it's some impromptu thing, I am going to rage. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's going to hurt my enjoyment of this company, if that's how he wins the title. It's going to hurt my enjoyment. and That's not what I want. I, I got to tell you, I'm sick and tired of these golden tickets and poker chips and battle royals and all this other assorted nonsense to earn title shots. Give me a number one contender, build them up properly and get them in there with the champion. Enough of this other nonsense. And if you're going to do it, stop overdoing it. You want to do your little don't be poker chip once a year. okay, but this has to be a planned title match at a planned time and place. Not this WWE bullshit where somebody comes running down to the ring with the poker chip and beats up somebody who's already tired. I got no time for it. I got no use for it. Tony, I'm warning you now. As if he cares what I think. But, I'm not going to have it. And I'll bury it six feet under. And I'll lose a lot of faith in this company. To deliver the kind of wrestling that I and fans like me want to see. Because that ain't it. Save that shit for SmackDown. I don't want that here. I don't like those answers I heard regarding that stupid poker chip. Anyway, very good Dynamite. Grand Slam. Excellent show. Looking forward to Rampage. We'll be right back. All right. One last segment to go. A little bit of house cleaning before we get into the CMLL anniversary show and the Dragon Gate Dangerous Gate show. The All Japan anniversary show. That did not hit the All Japan AJPW.TV site until earlier today. I'm recording this thursday afternoon so i did not have time to watch the all japan show before this podcast needed to get done so uh we will review the all japan show or at least talk about the all japan show on uh, next week's flagship so um look for that but the good italian boy gerard Trolio does have a review of that and i believe the follow-up corrigan on the voice of wrestling site proper yeah he's got the um all Japan 50th Anniversary Show review, and then the, uh, the follow-up show as well. So there are reviews on the site if you want to read written reviews. Uh, you can find them there, and we will take a look at that show on next week's flagship, of course, unless there's all kinds of crazy news that gets it bumped. But I do want to try to watch it at minimum, and at some point hopefully review it. Anyway... Let's talk about these two shows, both of which were excellent, I thought. We will start with the CMLL 89th anniversary, which took place last Friday. And listen, I know that Cubs fan uh, LuchaBlog is doing a gimmick where if you donate $10 to a charity of your choice, he will hook you up with a way to watch this show since it's impossible to order legally in the United States and all of that. So... Um, I highly recommend doing that. This is well worth the 10 bucks. I thought this show – look, I said it at the top. CMLL has great energy around it right now, and that's not always the case with CMLL. That's not always the case with any promotion. But the energy around this promotion is a positive energy. It's a strong energy. It's a good energy. I thought they made all the right key booking decisions on this show. Uh, As a lot of us figured, Atlantis Jr. was made to be the star of the show. He takes a mask in what turns out to be his first of what will probably be multiple anniversary main events. And he came across like a star. The crowd was red hot for this. They were sold out. And um, I'm back in with CMLL. I'm going to be keeping an eye on this promotion. I'm going to be paying attention to this promotion. And maybe absence makes the heart grow fonder. Didn't really pay much attention to CMLL, as I noted last week, during the pandemic era when it was just depressing to try to watch this company. And I think I really missed this traditional Lucha style, ironically enough, on a show where there really wasn't much in the way of two out of three falls matches. But I don't know if they're going to move away from that as, as, as sort of a gradual thing or a permanent thing. I think the Lucha experts would be better people to ask to get a better feel for that. But this wasn't the kind of show that was really suited towards a lot of traditional three-fall Lucha bouts due to the nature of the tournament and and all of that. So I don't know. I, I hope they don't move away from the two-out-of-three-falls format. Look, I have my complaints about it over the years. I think a lot of times the wrestlers just want to rush through those first two falls. But I'm also someone who respects history, respects tradition, and I'd be a little sad if CMLL moved away from that. You know, when it comes to AAA, I've been hard on AAA on this show the last couple of weeks. You know, I think it's it's a it's a trashy promotion, is what it is. It's the Mexican GCW. I don't really care what they do. Because I don't see that as traditional lucha anyway. And I'm not trying to come across like one of these traditionalists down in Mexico who just have no respect for AAA. I enjoy the occasional AAA show as a diversion. Sometimes they're fun bad. Sometimes they're fun. And sometimes they're really bad. But they're always trashy. And not watching CMLL for as long as I did... You know, it really made me realize that, that this is the brand of Lucha that I prefer. This is real Lucha. And um, when when a big CMLL show hits the way this one did, I, I don't think, you know, Triple H, Triple A may be able to match them or surpass them in, uh, you know, spectacular matches or, or you know, with, with the plunder and those sorts of things. But this is way more up my alley. I mean, when this kind of Lucha lands, it lands big. So, um, I'm into the CMLL right now. What can I say? This show had the same great energy that they've had all summer. And I really enjoyed a lot of this. Now, I didn't see the whole show. There were a couple matches here. As I'm looking at the results, I caught the tail end of the uh, of the only two out of three falls match on the entire show, which was uh, Euphoria, Hechicero, and Mephisto defeating Negro, Casas, Star, Jr., and uh, Titan. I only caught a couple minutes of that, of the last fall. And I I didn't even realize that was best two out of three falls because I didn't see the whole match. So um, I can't really speak to that. So what they did here was next out, and I don't think we knew this was going to happen, they sent out one representative from each of the four teams that were taking part in this tournament. It was Averno, Fuerza Guerrera, Atlantis Jr. and Dragon Rojo Jr. And they did the... some kind of weird battle royal to determine the match order. Because in a tournament like this, you really want your semifinal match to go on first because then you have more rest time before the final. So that was the psychology before this. And Averno and Fuerza Guerrera were the winners, which meant that that match, those teams would go on first. That would be the pairing in the first semifinal, Averno and Ultimo Guerrero versus Atlantis and Fuerza Guerrero. So by virtue of being the last two men standing in the Battle Royal, that meant that their match would go on first, and they would have that slight edge in having more rest before the final. So then next up, before they got the, the tournament started, they did that Copa tournament uh, three-way with Angel de Oro was the winner there with uh, Mystico and Valador Jr. They did the mask. You know, they took Mystico's mask off for the finish. So, you know, he had to protect his face and all that. So, Oro ends up being the – Angel de Oro ends up being the, the winner of that tournament. Good match. You know, I, again, I don't really want to see three-ways in, in, in my CMLL. That's not something I really want. I would have preferred just a one-on-one match even if it wasn't best of three. But uh, it was entertaining enough. And then we get into the tournament. Where Averno and Ultimo Guerrero defeated Atlantis and Fuerza Guerrera, uh, Fuerza is really getting up there. I may have underestimated just how. I mean, he's almost seventy years old. So Averno and Ultimo Guerrero won, and the crowd booed. I don't even think because they, they, they were, you know, because it's like they don't want to see the guys. They they didn't want a hair match. These fans did not want a hair match for the for you know the singles match at the end. So when the hair match guys won, I think that's why the crowd, a lot of the crowd reacted the way they did. I mean, they probably wanted, a lot of people there probably wanted to see Atlantis and Fuerza Guerrera have the mask match at the end, you know, with the two veteran legends. And they may end up still getting that match. I mean, I see some chatter that, you know, that could end up being a match at next year's anniversary, which would be a very big match and probably draw very well. But both guys, in particular, Fuerza Guerrera, are really starting to slow down. The match would probably be atrocious. Atlantis will be over 60 by the time that match would take place if they wait a year. Fuerza Guerrera, you know, will be a few months away from being 70. So if they're going to do that, if one of those guys wants to lose the mask to the other, and I would assume that Atlantis would win that match, and Fuerza Guerrera would unmask, and for those who don't know, that's the father of Juventud Guerrera, um you probably have to shit or get off the pot and do this very soon. I mean, you can't wait too many more anniversary shows to do this. So, um, but at any rate, it didn't happen here as a and Ultimo Guerrero advance. So then we had Atlantis Jr. and Stuka Jr. And they advanced, which is what I wanted to see. I wanted to see Atlantis Jr. get to the end of this thing. And, They did advance here, and I thought this match was uh, super fun. And, you know, because you had four really good workers in there. So Dragon Rojo Jr. and El Soberano are very good. And uh, Atlantis Jr. obviously is the the star of the day, a guy we've talked about a lot over the last two weeks. And Stuka Jr. is a guy who some of you who might not watch Lucha but do watch New Japan, I mean, he works virtually every – uh, fantastic, a mania tour, and he does that backwards dive off the top rope to the floor, and, you know, he's a um, bowling ball-shaped dude, but very athletic and and a really good worker in his own right. Um, so anyway, they advanced in what I thought was a really good match, and then th- this was all rapid fire, right? So then Averno and Ultimo Guerrero get right to the ring, and they have such charisma. I mean, Averno and Ultimo Guerrero just jump off the screen. Averno has always been a favorite of mine. And Ultimo Guerrero is obviously one of the most charismatic Lucha stars of this era. And, you know, I was surprised at looking at the match length, you know, and this was uh, a very exciting two and a half minutes. And because those guys have just have such great charisma, but um, I felt like the crowd wanted to see the two masked men go into the final so that we can get a proper mask versus mask match in the, the main event. And, and that's, that's the direction they went. So, Atlantis Jr. and Stuka Jr. win the very short two-minute match in the final. And then uh, they head to the back and get a breather. And then we had the the women's mask match, which was La Jorachita and Reina Isis. And let me tell you something. Don't skip it. My God, this was great. This may have been the best match of the night. This was fantastic. Um, I think I preferred Atlantis Jr. and Stuka Jr. a little bit. But these are both easily notebook matches. And there was a lot of... Uh, intensity uh, to this women's mask match. And uh Gero Chita ends up being the winner here. Um, great match. Great match on a great show, on what really was a great show. Um, I'm surprised that cage match, there's only two votes in. So there's no rating officially, but both votes were an eight. That's about where I'd go on this show as a whole. You know, eight out of ten. But the two mask matches were fantastic. And then Atlantis Jr. with his father at ringside. And Stuka Jr. with El Hijo de Stuka Jr. at ringside. And man, did they have a great match. They really did. And, you know, everyone's seen the, 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 the gif at this point of the Atlantis dive where Stuka Jr. gets out of the way. And it, it, look, this was just classic Lucha. And, you know, I, I didn't think the finish was in doubt. That may have hurt it a little. Because I didn't think, you know, they're not going to unmask Atlantis Jr. They they expect him to be a big star moving forward. So, he, you know, he looks just like his dad. He works just like his dad. He won it with the backbreaker deal just like his dad. Uh, a very good finish. And Stuka Jr. unmasks. And not since Ultimo Guerrero has a man unmasked and looked exactly how I pictured him in my head. Stuka Jr. looks exactly like I thought Stuka Jr. would look. Uh, I saw someone compare him to Wahoo McDaniel. It's not far off. I mean, he looks like the way his body is shaped. And he worked his ass off here. This really was a great match. And Atlantis Jr. is well on his way. This guy's got everything he needs. The legacy, the tools, the look, the work. So... um, Excellent main event. Excellent semi-main event. The show was fun as hell. Your three hours on the dot. Didn't feel like three hours. Now, to be fair, I did miss a match. But when a show is super fun like this, you know, they never feel like the dragon. So everything on this show was, you know, held held my attention. And most of it was really good. So a strong recommendation for that show if you have a chance to see it. So as far as Dragon Gate, Dangerous Gate goes, I have to tell you, I wanted to hate watch this because I am just so checked out on Dragon Gate. You know, as long as, as Ultimo Dragon and Nosawa Rangai and their sleazer pals are in the mix here, um, I am keeping this promotion at arm's length. I just am. It's it's, And you know... We could potentially be seeing the exit of two more stars. One of them for sure. I'll talk about that at the end. As we saw, Naruki Doi and Eita give their bows to the crowd. And I do have some information on both of those situations. With varying degrees of confidence in what I have to say. But, look. uh, Ota City Gym, they drew almost 1,800 fans. Pretty good number by their modern standards. And this show had two... Excellent bookend matches. The Open the Twin Gate match to open the show may have been the best match on the show. I think I may have preferred it a little bit to the main event with Dragon Daya and Madoka Kakuda winning the Twin Gate titles from the Kung Fu Masters. Of course, Jackie Funky Kamei and Jason Lee. And I thought this felt like just the right time for the title change. The the The, the Kung Fu Masters team felt like they still had a little juice, but... Sometimes you don't want to wait too long, right? And it was to me it was uh the right timing to move the titles to the uh Decourage team and and even if it was a little too soon to take the titles off of the the champions um you know better a little too soon than a little too late and these two teams killed it. In fact, and Jackie Funky Kame and Jason Lee Look, we know Dragon Gate isn't top of mind for a lot of people these days, and even when it was, they weren't clean gonna clean up an award season. But I think you know, I, I would like to see them get some down ballot support for tag team of the year. I think they've deserved they've earned it and they deserve it. Um we'll see what happens with that. But not an unexpected title change to me, and one that I think the timing is right on. And I thought arguably it was the match of the show. So we had Yasushi Kanda in there with uh, Kaito Nagano, one of the rookies. And this was just a veteran leading a rookie through a match. So um, it's exactly what it looks like on paper. And, and and exactly fine for what it was supposed to be and what it was. And then you had the uh, veteran eight-man tag with all the veteran guys from, from another era. Or a lot of eras actually mixed in here. Genki Horiguchi. Ken Arai, my boy, um, Ichikawa and Ultimo Dragon on the actually they were on the losing end with uh, Sachi Hoko boy and Takashi Yoshida and Ryu Fuda and um, who was the other guy? A Punch Tamanaga, right? So um, this was, you know, it's it's the veteran match where everybody does the shit that you're familiar with. And it the match doesn't really mean anything. In the grander scheme. Um, So. You know. The middle part of the show was a lot of that. The next match too. Suji Kondo and Toru Owashi. And Toru Owashi can get lost. He's another one of these guys I have no use for. At this point. You know against Ho Ho Lung and Super Shen Long. You know same thing. So. um, Just get in get out. Doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme. And then Ho Ho Lung. Comically running back to the English commentary booth, all out of breath. I mean, that guy's just a joy. He's a joy. So, uh, we had Benkei, Kota Minora, and Naruki Doi. And they defeat Dragon Kid, Kajitor, and Yamato. Benkei comes out of this one looking good. Naruki Doi does the four bows to each side. So, what I'm hearing about Naruki Doi, and I tried to do a little digging here. As this is just a matter of... It's possible he wants to just join his boys with Glee, And this was his first opportunity to get a chance to get out. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that's... Speculation based because it just makes sense. Or if that's hard information. But... That's what I heard regarding this. And I don't think it would stun anyone. You know, so... I I've been saying for months, you know, you can don't be surprised when more people leave. As the chef as the uh deck continues to be reshuffled in Dragon Gate. This is not your big brother's Dragon Gate. This is not your father's Dragon Gate. And you know, it's unfortunate. I hate what I what's happening in a lot of ways to this company and it's this weird dichotomy cuz they have all this good young talent um but a lot of things going down here shouldn't be going down the way that they're going down. So, Natural Vibes versus Zebrats. And uh, it was Natural Vibes on top in this one. The sides were uh, Strong Machine, J, UT, and uh, Shimizu. And, um, no, it was the other way around, right? It was the, okay, so they did the no DQ gimmick. So, they ha- they restarted the match this was a little confusing so they they did one match and then restarted it and then at the end a fake um a fake Shun Skywalker comes out for like a distraction finish now we know it's not the real Shun Skywalker cuz he's in the United States right now doing the US thing so you know your mileage may vary what you think of all of that And I don't know if we're going to do the classic Dragon Gate fake version of a guy. Which we've seen them do in the past. Or if we're just trying to put over that this is the real Shun Skywalker. Um, But yeah, this got gimmicky. And you know the nature of this feud. You know, you can't... It's Dragon Gate, you know. So, um, it was just a real weird finish and... It's uh, hopefully they're just going to do an imposter like where it's obvious that it's not really shooting Skywalker, but we'll see what direction they go with that. The triangle gate match was uh, went as expected to me as the champions retain uh, Mochizuki, Mochizuki Jr. and uh, Sasumu Mochizuki, um, you know, with Don Fuji and and the uh, the young kid and then the veteran uh, Koji Ishin Riki. So. You know, I didn't expect a title change here, and we didn't get one. So, um, this was more storyline advancement with this feud coming to a close, and then, you know, the veteran uh, you know, wanting to get his son as part of, you know, the opposite group, the M3K. So... It looks like that's sort of the next direction. And, there, you know, there's hesitation because these two sides have been feuding. But, um, you know, so we'll see where that goes. But Mochizuki Jr., this was about the young guys, and this was about the feud and the feud coming to an end more than it was about the Triangle Gate title. So, uh, and then at the main event with Yuki Yoshioka defeating Eita and what I thought was another... Um, you know, excellent match. I thought we had bookend notebook quality matches on this show. And Yoshi had to use two frog splashes to win this one over a very feisty Eita who wrestled with a lot of ferocity here. And they kind of look, I don't think anyone thought Eita had a realistic chance of winning the match, but then when he dominated 90% of it, I think it became pretty clear uh, that, that he wasn't going to win, but, You know, Ata, I I think people are too hard on him. I've always enjoyed him as a worker. And it looks like he's going to be done with Dragon Gate. But not for good. He's going to pop his head in, but he's going to spend most of his time with Pro Wrestling Noah and the Peros guys and wherever they happen to travel. And that's going to be his primary gig now. And I'm told that it's not any kind of contentious exit. Like some of these other Dragon Gate exits have been, these recent exits have been contentious or guys have been forced out. And that's not the case here. This is a guy who you'll see from time to time in Dragon Gate, but it's just not going to be his primary gig anymore. And I think for people who follow all of this closely, this isn't all that much of a surprise, not nearly as much. As the Doi thing, which I guess people could have seen the writing on the wall with Doi to some extent, but the timing of it kind of shocked a lot of people. Um, You know, where it's like, you're not surprised that it's happening with Doi, but seeing it with your own eyes was still, oh my God, is this, can this be real? Is the rookie Doi going to be another one of these legends who just is gone from the company? Where with Eta, I think, he's had one foot out the door for quite a while. So, he does business the right way. Puts over Yoshioka. And he'll pop his head in from time to time. Probably with his boys. But, again, I tried to hate-watch this show and I couldn't do it. Because the, the opener and the main event were so good. And while everything in the middle wasn't great, I mean, it was all... There was enough here. There was enough glimmers of old school Dragon Gate. You know, in terms of some of the veteran matches in the middle. And the veteran versus the rookie. And the hot unit feud thrown in there. With the wacky angle with Shun Skywalker. With the fake Shun. And then the Triangle Gate stuff. With with all the storyline stuff there. So... This felt more like classic Dragon Gate than a lot of Dragon Gate recently has. Um, I just have to come to terms in whatever stage of grief that I'm in that the Dragon Gate that I came to know and love for so many years is gone. It's dead and gone. It is. This is going to be a new Dragon Gate. I don't think the defections are over. Um, and you, know, you just hope that the young wrestlers and there's a ton of them and we all know who they are and we saw a ton of them on display here. And featured. And featured. That's important too. Um, can create a new legacy. And a new era of the company. Right now I think we're just in a weird space. Personally I wish Ultimo Dragon. And Nosawa. And Awashi. And all the scummers that and, that come along with them. I wish that element would just go away for good. It is what it is. Um, And we see. But. You know, I, I gotta be honest. If it wasn't for the big collection of, of of great young talent that they have, this might be a promotion that I would be hand waving. Uh, due to the presence of those of those people, it just doesn't interest me. Um, I think they're they're negative and uh, and 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 a, a negative presence in every way. Um, but. I'm going to stick out this very awkward and seemingly never-ending Dragon Gate transition phase to see where the dust settles and what happens. Because these rookies and these younger wrestlers are too good. They're too good to just ignore. You can't do it. Am I locked into every core I'm not. Am I going to watch all these big shows? Am I going to follow the booking? Yeah, I am. That I'll do. That I'll commit to. So, really good show. I know my energy isn't great for the review. It's just, you know why? Again, it's that element. I have to keep this promotion at arm's length as long as those scummers are around. It it, it really is a shame what how some of this had to go down. This is like, uh, I don't even know a good analogy. Maybe a breakup that just has to happen. And nobody feels good about it. You know there's breakups where someone's doing you wrong. And you're just like you know what? Fuck you. Get your shit and move out. And those feel good. You go out and party with your boys. Or you know. A woman breaks up with some shitbag dude. Who's been fucking shitty to her. And she just goes out with the girls. And parties up. And just moves on. And he's finally gone. I finally did it. Those kind of breakups feel good. And then there's the kind of breakups. Where both people feel a little dirty about it. Nobody feels great about it. Things probably could have worked out better. If everybody, if both sides did things a little different. And you just feel shitty. Everybody feels shitty. Yeah, it's, it, it, this, transit, this weird transition period. With these guys leaving one by one. Dropping like flies. This just all feels so shitty. And I really wish Dragon Gate. Could just move past it quickly. But like that kind of breakup, you can't. It takes time. And um, it's slow. I wish everyone who ultimately is going to get out of this place gets out tomorrow. But it's just like this slow one guy at a time and one piece of drama after the next. And it's it's like going through one of those painful breakups, but you're still texting each other every day. It can't be that way. You gotta rip the band-aid off, you gotta not talk to each other ever again and it just because you can't keep lingering. But man, you know the future can be very bright. I just would hate to see that future sunk by the presence of some unsavory types that are seeping their way that have seeped their way into this company and have varying levels of influence. So that's all I have to say about that. But I do recommend the show. And um, Iron Mike Spears in place of Case Lowe did the review on the site. And he also did solo audio on Open the Voice Gate talking about this show much more in depth than I'm able to do here. So if you want to know more. And we've always been Dragon Gate centric around you know the voice of wrestling orbit. So I know a lot of you are into the Dragon Gate. We've got great written and audio content elsewhere outside of this show. That you can uh, enjoy as well. Did I hit every topic? Are we done here? Roman Reigns, Grand Slam, CMLL, Dragon Gate, Raw Ratings, Grand Slam Business, Sabu, Mox, and Gage. Yeah, we did it all. I think the solo effort's in the canon. Not a moment too soon because my voice has had it. Three hours of NFL intelligentsia last night for me. That should be on your pay feeds for you NFL fans. Believe it or not, we got diverted with non-NFL. Could you believe it? A podcast with me went off topic. About an hour of off topic banter as uh, Jesse attempted to run through the title history of the WWE title to see how far he could get before he'd screw up. Jesse Collings, of course. And then I attempted to name every soccer player I could dead or alive in the history of soccer. All of this on an NFL show. Where we did manage to talk about some football over the course of the three hours. So a little plug for that. And I think I'm done here. So for the absent Rich Kreich, who will be back next week, I'm Joe Lanza. Take care.